Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about the next wave of walking simulators, starting with a space walking simulator, Adrift. So Rob, I've been playing Adrift. This is a game by Adam Orth. He was you know, f- infamous for being you know, fired and all sorts of other things on a previous game. Uh, this is 130 Studios' very first game, and it is exactly that. It is a walking simulator in space, but instead of just walking around, uh, much of the game actually has you spacewalking. It is a zero-G simulator where you are able to control sort of all aspects of your movement. You can thrust forward, you can go up, you can go down, you can kind of do a little barrel roll, uh, sort of Star Fox style. And you use these these sort of, you know, mechanics to get around and do the things you would do in a walking simulator. You know, read diaries, read computer entries, look at environmental art, and sort of piece together what happened on your blown-up spaceship. So, hang on, because this confused me a little bit when you brought <laughs> sure. this up the first time. I thought Adrift was just a VR game. It is a VR game, but I played it. You can also play it completely absent the VR element. And it's actually, I mean, this is a topic for another day, but I'm not really sold on VR and I'm not really interested in VR for Mm -hmm. uh, gaming applications for the most part. I've tried it a little bit. It just kind of made me sick. Um, And, you know, I've heard people say this is great in VR because it really, you really get the sense of sort of moving in zero G. I actually think you get that sense just from playing the game. Um, just as much as you would playing any other kind of game, the movement feels so good and so realistic. And now, of course, this is me saying it's realistic and not being an astronaut who actually goes on spacewalks, but <laughs> it feels very real. It feels very, you know, what is it? Newton's first law? Object in motion continues yeah. until okay, I'm not sure if it it's the first very law. Newtonian. Yes, exactly. It feels very Newtonian and it feels wonderful just to control this game. I actually was so engrossed in movement and motion that I, I you know, was interested in the story. It's, it's, it's well-written. It's, it's, it's cool. It's interesting. But I was so enamored at the idea of, like, spacewalking that, that you know, and the, and the entire idea that this could be kind of the new frontier of, of you know, quote-unquote walking simulators. Games that have the same kind of idea where you are sort of passively exploring a world and, uh, you know, getting story details from that exploration. But the traversal mechanics are so completely different and interesting and, you know, more involved that that's kind of, I feel like this might be the next level of this kind of game. Um, And of course, it made me think of Tacoma as well, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of playing this. I was like, oh, you know, this is sort of like in Tacoma where you can change gravity. and, And so traversal is different in that. And uh, you know, I sort of almost expect this to be sort of the new wave of walking sims, which excites me a lot because I, you know, we talk about this a lot, but I love narrative games. I love a good walking simulator. I sure do. And so a, a good walking simulator with other things going on is uh, even cooler if those other things actually work and make sense for the story. So you're seeing like the future of the uh, the future of the genre is like yes you're still walking but now <laughs> you're walking against this backdrop of like insanely epic stuff <laughs> pretty much or or just the the feeling of of traversal like okay let's put it this way if actual traversal is partially a puzzle or partially an action sort of mechanic that already is sort of adding something new and adding something else to be sort of paying attention to. Now, in a drift, you're also 
you do have something like a, a sort of timer, but you basically need to keep consuming oxygen to keep going. So there's there's also a little bit of an element of hey, you, you gotta you gotta keep moving forward. You gotta keep going here, which I actually liked. I could see how that could be annoying if it were stingy about the oxygen, but in, instead it just sort of added like, all right, we're moving the story forward. We'll keep going, keep going, we we'll keep going, which I actually thought was pretty rad. Uh, in this context, anyway, I don't know if it would work in other contexts if you're not in outer space, basically. So, what kind of stuff? Like, tell, tell me a little bit about this story and how it's using the setting. Like, is it is it just like you're exploring outer space in a space station, or are we like in a gravity type situation where all hell is broken loose and you're kind of surviving a disaster? Like, <laughs> is there a survival overlay to this thing, oh, or yeah. is something else going on? Oh yeah, it, it's basically gravity of the game, but with you know walking simulator type stuff going on. You sort of wake up and you are Commander Alex Oshima. She's a woman uh, commander of this space station that, you know, of course they were working on some secret project and we have to figure out what that is. Um, And you wake up in the middle of an explosion. Like she was knocked out by the explosion and wakes up and, you know, you're sort of suspended above Earth. It's very, very much like gravity. And she, she sort of gets caught on a piece of debris and uses that to pull herself into the ruined remains of the space station. Um, so it's completely gravity. Uh, and so maybe your mileage will vary, uh, based on how much you liked gravity, which I, I really did. I thought gravity was pretty awesome for what it was. Yeah. I thought it, I, um, I really enjoyed that movie. A lot. <laughs> I, my, it's funny. The rest of my family thinks it was a, a, you know, a turd basically, but I, I loved it. Did you it, see it so. in theaters? I did. I saw. Did, I mean, I saw it in they IMAX. See it in theaters? They did, but I don't hmm. think they saw it in you know the full glory of IMAX. But yeah, you know. that was a, that was definitely a movie where like IMAX 3D. I was like, okay, yeah. I totally get like this. Oh, is, yeah. This is 100 percent working for me. And I do wonder how that would have translated to maybe a less optimal experience. But in, in general, just I thought, I thought the entire idea of like shipwreck in in outer space was 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 pretty awesome. Uh, I, yeah, the, the the dead kid stuff sucked. Uh, yeah, but, that was a little. Uh, uh, a little maudlin, of course, but but yeah, it's it's a. I think it's a pretty great movie, and I think Sandra Bullock sells it completely. Yes. Um, obviously, in the hands of a lesser performer, it would have been a, a pile of of space turds. But yeah, so this is very much Gravity the game, um, and also you know actually brought some vibes of Soma as well. Uh, okay. Just maybe the design of the world, you know, not not in terms of mechanics or, or those sort of. You know, there's no monsters to hide from or anything like that. But in terms of just sort of the way Soma tells its story, like, you know, the the way that you're interacting with other characters through, you know, sort of the you know, the incidentals that you're that you're looking at, the, the interface even of, of sort of the computer looked the same as Soma and the way the, the character portraits were done looked the same as Soma. Really just sort of similar vibes. And those are always a good thing for me since I adored Soma as well. So when we're talking about like, so I think the reason a lot of things get called a walking simulator <laughs> is fundamentally you're just walking from point A to point B and not really doing much of anything. Yeah. And you mentioned traversal being an issue a little bit. Uh, so, I mean, like, you know, going to the gravity comparison, right? Gravity is really a, a survival story. Like yeah. there's a series of problems that have to be solved there, which each problem creates the sense of urgency. Does a drift have you sort of trying to outrun, like basically as a player is giving you space to explore and come with solutions to to problems, or is it mostly you walk to a place and the character and the narrative creates a solution to a problem, but you, the player, don't do anything? You do have to do the sort of, 
you are solving problems, but it is fairly rudimentary. You know, it's a little bit like the way alien isolation handles those things. You know, you you do have to sort of figure out where to go and and how to, you know, pull the right switch, that sort of thing. Uh, But, you know, it really is sort of Alex doing it. Um, it, it's much more on the on the walking sim side than the mm-hmm. actual survival sim side, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So, what are you seeing here that really makes you feel like ah, this is the future versus this is just a cool new skin on an increasingly familiar genre? More than anything, I think it's that traversal is an actual pleasurable thing that you're doing. It doesn't really feel like just an automatic thing. You know, pressing a stick forward feels pretty automatic to us as gamers. We do it in pretty much every game, any first person game anyway. But this game actually made me think about momentum and think about sort of movement. It made me think about, okay, if I float exactly at, you know, at the right speed, at the right pace, I can just grab this oxygen tank and sort of thrust myself over to the, you know, the, the next door or the, you know, the next place to go or, Hey, there's something cool to explore over there. How can I get there by using the least amount of fuel? So that's the other thing that's kind of going on. You want to conserve your fuel and oxygen actually serves as your fuel. There's only kind of one resource really that you need to worry about. So the game rewards you, or at least made me feel rewarded for thinking about that and being cognizant of that and actually really sort of trying to min max my oxygen consumption and the way I moved around the world. This, I don't know. There was something really pleasurable about that to me. Also as somebody who, you know, wanted to be an astronaut their entire life and likes the idea of zero gravity and moving around in zero Mm -hmm. gravity. uh, It was really fun to move. It felt really, really good to move around it felt like flying in a really fun and realistic and kind of cool way. Uh, and that just sort of gave me something else to think about. Now, typically, if I, you know, am I, I'm playing a first-person game, a first-person story-based game where, you know, mechanically, pretty much all you do is walk around and look at things, you're not thinking about movement, usually. You're not thinking about that because it just sort of happens automatically. Uh, and this game is so intentional, and I... It, there's, I'm, I'm trying not to say it felt more like a game because that's an incredibly reductive way of putting this. Let's, let's say it put me so much more in the world because of that, because I was thinking about how to move around and because moving around felt so good, it, it gave me kind of more going on, uh, the game feel of it, I guess, um, game feel as one word. <laughs> well, I, at this point, I think we're trying to get around the... It felt like a, it felt like a cool video game with a cool story. It's it's hard to like put it in in more eloquent ways. <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes like look, I I'm aware that the whole like not a real game thing is incredibly loaded. At the same time, <laughs> sometimes we we both know what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like we know yeah. like sometimes something is a little maybe more and more of an active experience and a little more yes. engaging uh and might require a little more engagement than another type of experience. And that's not to make a value judgment, but sometimes one experience can be a little more engrossing to you as a player. That I couldn't have said it better myself, Rob. That's exactly what was going on here. <laughs> uh so I mean like so let me let me Follow this up with a recent experience I had. Uh, not, not that long ago, I was I was sort of uh, I was I was house sitting for a friend, and um, I had sort of a day left out at his place, and he had every everybody's gone to the rapture, or everyone is no everybody's yeah. gone to the rapture. Yes. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'll 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 give this a shot. 
And at first, I was like, oh my god, this is hauntingly beautiful. The music, yeah. the the light, the this gorgeous, like gorgeously presented, like idyllic, abandoned, sad and eerie English village. Oh, it was it was wonderful. Yeah. For about forty minutes. <laughs> and then then sort of a, a long slide started between <laughs> between yeah. me and that game where like everything about it was forcing you to linger over the environment in just the way the developer had uh had sort of intended um like it was paced so that you could only sort of consume the game at, at a slow sip yeah. Um, which I can understand wanting to do that, but at the same time, it vastly overestimated the degree to which that environment was interesting. <laughs> and it did kind of make me feel like, okay, you know, ultimately this is like, it is, it is a way, it is, it is a new way to sort of package your, your radio play, uh, type story. Yeah. And it is a way to create an interactive experience without necessarily having to design, you know, a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> combat mechanics or whatever else. It's a, it's a way to just, like, create, like, an environment you can explore and then use that to tell a story. But at the same time, there's only... Especially, especially when you can't like when you can't like easily go rummaging through certain areas when like when everything's sort of at face value and you yeah. just kind of look around. Uh, there's there's a limited amount that you can that you can actually accomplish. I think with with that format, and I, I do kind of like I do kind of feel sometimes that there's this there's this boom right now in 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 games like this that suddenly it's it's becoming increasingly a distinct genre right it's yeah. like it's it's becoming this interesting like offshoot of, of the fps genre uh but on the other hand as i'm playing everybody's gone to the rapture i'm like if this is the future it sucks because <laughs> the like after a certain point the only thing that was keeping me going really was you know kind of the the, the music and, sure, and just the sure. general like vibe of that game, like, but it was just excruciating trying to get through this through this like pretty pretty simple and, and dull story uh, at this sort of enforced death march. Sure, I so I have a really facetious question. Yes, um, do you think if traversal was less of an issue, if you could actually go at your own pace, if you had a skateboard, I don't whatever would be appropriate for you know an eighties English town. I don't know if a skateboard would be a car, whatever. Yeah, but you have would, that, would that help? That game, but go on. Well, would that have helped if you could actually yes. take it at your pace, as opposed to you know, sort of this enforced death march? Would that have helped? Oh yeah, completely. Okay. Like that game felt so controlling about the way things could unfold and the pace at which they could unfold that it was just it was excruciating. And actually, I was going back and I like remember a few days after like reviews that came out, the developer yeah. was like, "Oh, everyone reviewed it wrong because uh, <laughs> there there is a fast movement button. No, there no there isn't. Yeah. There is no run button in that game. <laughs> and the entire like, oh, like you can you can hold this button down and you'll slowly accelerate. You what? will barely accelerate. You accelerate <laughs> in the same way that in Gears, like they change the camera angle to make it look like you're sprinting when you hunker oh, down. Yeah. But you're not really moving like that differently in terms of speed. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on in that game. Yeah. But I like that control over the way you could explore the space, like, was incredibly grating to me. Yeah. And kind of killed the game for me, because at a certain point, 
like you know at a certain like you know in the end it like that game was going to stand or fall based on how then rewarding that story was because yeah. there wasn't much else to, to to go from and so by controlling the pace and controlling the way you got at it it was really forcing you it was it was really forcing each of those story beats to land <laughs> just the way they wanted um and in the end what 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 they were telling was a was a pretty pretty prosaic story. I thought of yeah. you know love and jealousy and arrogance in a little English village, which is something that you know you can get a limitless dose of on 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 masterpiece theater or PBS <laughs> mystery uh, for the last thirty years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but that issue with traverse, traversal, I think, if I've been able to sort of run around and look at things and explore more at my own pace, I would have felt, I think, freer to explore. But what that game did was it turned physical space not into an opportunity for exploration, but a barrier between you and the thing you wanted to get to. Hmm. And that's a very different... Those are two... You know, it, 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 yes. can be two, it can be two rows of the same end. But handling it one way, you're encouraging the sort of behavior you want. And on the handling it the other way, the way everybody's gone to the rapture handles it, you're kind of just hobbling people and forcing them into your exact vision for the game. Yeah. As I'm, as I'm hearing you and and as I'm thinking about it, I, I'm thinking of other games that have have kind of tried to do the, what walking simulators do well, which is really completely immerse you into a story and make you feel like you're the, you know, you're the little detective sort of putting things together. That's, Mm -hmm. that's your role in that game. And also have other interesting things going on. So as I'm thinking about it, a lot of my favorite games uh, sort of in my life have been games that, you know, they do a mixture of, of sort of slightly different gameplay elements. Well, you know, the Zelda games, you're never doing one thing for very long in Zelda. You're solving a puzzle, then you're doing combat, then you're doing something else. I wonder if it's it's a real, the issue is sort of getting the blend right. Uh, getting the blend of, of potentially other interesting mechanical things going on as well as an immersive, wonderful, incredibly engaging story. Um, did you play The Vanishing of Ethan Carter at all? Uh, no, and I've had it. I've had it on my stack for ages. Sure, sure. Um, that's a game where <laughs> it's beautiful and immersive and interesting, and it does actually give you interesting and kind of cool puzzles to do. But the story itself isn't great, so it kind of all kind of falls apart on that end. But at least the developers did actually put together something that was. God, I'm I'm sorry to use this reductive term, but sort of gamey. You know, there were puzzles, basically. Um, I actually think Adrift does this, you know, going back to Adrift, does it really well. Having the, you know, sort of traversal mechanics be interesting and fun and sort of pleasurable to play, as well as having a cool, interesting story and environment uh, to sort of be in. Um, I'm really interested in seeing how Tacoma does it. Cause I know in Tacoma upcoming, you know, also space, <laughs> space-based story-based game, uh, you sort of reverse gravity all the time to get around in that game. So the environments themselves are sort of giant puzzles that you have to sort of figure out. And that's how you get to the story bits. Um, I think Firewatch certainly, I'm sorry to keep bringing up games that our friends have made, but you know, I think Firewatch did something interesting with this by having the story be, sort of active and not just sort of something you're discovering, um, you know, as a detective sort of later on, at least most of the story in that game. It just feels to me like we're in this sort of growing pains era for this genre where people are are really, you know, some folks and some teams are starting to really figure out ways of making this interesting and evolving the genre a bit. And some folks, it seems like maybe everybody's gone to the rapture are still a little bit stuck in, um, you know, sort of the the bare bones of the form. 
Um, although very beautiful, you know, we can't fault the game for yeah, <laughs> for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Firewatch is an interesting case because that actually, for me, committed a number of the same sins as uh, mm-hmm. Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. I think the the key difference was that it wasn't this profoundly isolating experience. The, the, yeah. the, the inherent to the game is that there's someone else on the radio that's talking to you. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I was as disappointed as anyone when I discovered that sort of the, the story I thought was unfolding was not, in fact, the story that was unfolding. Sure, sure. Uh, the, sort of the, the, the sort of feints toward suspense and, and maybe even a bit of horror uh, were... You know, not not quite as on the up and up as you thought, and I yeah. remember that kind of that that definitely left me feeling let down. But fundamentally, what I was there for was this relationship with this character over the radio, and so yes. even though I was spending an awful lot of time, perhaps too much time, uh, just sort of like you know tramping along that that landscape. It felt different than Everybody's Gone to the Rapture because at Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, the only thing waiting for you is another place where you stop and you watch like shimmery like ghosts, like, (laughs) you know, perform a scene from before the disaster. Yeah. Uh, it also helps not having loathsome characters. I think that's the yeah, like if your, if your, if your game is fundamentally like going to be narrative driven, um, like you should, you should mind the ratio of assholes to cool people in your story. And I think everybody's gone to the rapture. Like that entire game could be summarized as like two enormously arrogant, shitty scientists <laughs> destroy the world and kill all their friends. Yep, that's yeah. It's hard to care about enormously shitty, arrogant people unless yeah. they have you know something else interesting going on. Of course, um, yeah. That that makes a lot of sense to me, but. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, I like, I, I guess I kind of wish for me that this genre wasn't such this, didn't have such a, a sharp dividing line between these sort of experiential passive experience, like passive games yeah, versus uh, slightly more active, like gamey games. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, I don't know if more puzzles are necessarily the solution to that, but I think... A lot of times it feels like in these games I'm sort of being put on rails, even though, you know, even if they give me like a lot of room to move laterally, fundamentally I'm on rails, I'm going around seeing all the things I'm meant to see, and then the story advances, and it doesn't really feel like I'm inhabiting much of anything. Yeah. Whereas... You know, in in a lot of, I, I actually think a lot of your more interesting survival uh, games and and shooters have actually handled this pretty well, right? Like a lot of a lot of these games, it's it's the thought of something that might happen that, that sort of keeps you on on pins and needles, and most of what you're doing is exploring and occasionally trying to occasionally trying to solve something whether it's whether it's trying to figure out from environmental clues where the next thing you need is actually hidden in the environment um or or just trying to get a simple task done while being hunted by an alien or something (laughs) yeah uh these things help because they make the space feel alive and like there's something that you have to do that you have to go and find versus you just have to go hit your blocking right and the story will advance yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, I'm going to say Soma and Alien Isolation do that so well. Although I know 
there are issues with alien I'm, isolation. I'm working on it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> still working through it. Still working through it. Okay. Uh, I will. Well, I've, I've been a little busy with the move lately. Sure, of uh, course, but, but of course. Yeah. I, I may, I may punt and just and and turn down the 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 difficulty on Friday. I think that's more than fair, honestly. Whatever it takes to experience that wonderful game that yeah. I'm probably the only person who loves it as much as I do, but <laughs> I, I support that. All right, so I think it's probably time for us to move on to weekend correspondence, and we got a lot of letters this week. We got so many, so thank you for heeding our message sort of at the end of, of uh, last week there. So our first email comes from Paul from Oslo. Paul writes, Hi, Rob and Danielle. I just listened to your podcast on the Wii U, and one thing that Rob said is the main reason I think it failed with the main audience uh, that Nintendo targeted with the console. Rob said he didn't like the Wii U because he had to use the Wiimote uh, and wished he could use a more classical controller akin to the th- Xbox 360 controller. Thing is, the Wiimote was originally only supported uh, because the Wii U had a legacy Wii mode. The marketed main controller for the Wii U and all promotional material when it launched contained only the gamepad and the pro controller, which is exactly what Rob wants. IMHO, it is even a bit more comfortable to use than the Xbox 360 controller to the point where I use it when I play most PC games. The reason I think most gamers associate the Wii U with the Wiimote is that developers continue to support it as a control scheme because most Wii U owners, uh, they have them lying around anyway, so they didn't bother buying other controllers. Paul from Oslo. So when I got this email, I was like, oh, God, I, I sound like an idiot. I totally screwed up. And I Googled the thing he's talking about. And I felt less bad because I have never seen that controller in my life. <laughs> like, I have been yeah. to several people's houses who have Wii U's. Not once have I ever encountered <laughs> this this Wii U Pro controller. And I think Paul's probably right. That this is all part of the Wii U's weird identity as this, well, the Wii was a big success. We don't want to leave that behind. Yeah. And ends up being this weird, like, it is a new console, but a lot of stuff ends up being sort of grandfathered in that maybe should have been better off dead. Yeah. I don't know, but like... I, think I had you're never right. seen. I had. No, I had no idea. Like I couldn't play Mario Kart with that. Like yep. hell yes. Like where do I, where do I sign? It's so much better. I actually have one of those, and I do use it for for things like Mario Kart. However, I I am the only person that I know who has one. To be honest, I think maybe Phil Kohler had one too. But um, I, honestly, it's only game journalists that I know that have them because they're they were not. You know, like who who the hell knows to go buy that thing? It's not like it seems like an obvious thing, and. Here's what really annoys me uh, in terms of controllers and the Wii U. So the Wii U has a GameCube controller port, right? Where you can plug in GameCube controllers, which a lot of people do have lying around, especially if you played a lot of Smash Brothers in, you know, the very early 2000s. Here's the problem. And correct me if I'm wrong, letter writers, but I believe it only works with Smash. It's only for Smash, which is bananas because that would be great for things like Mario Kart as well. Any of the multiplayer games, that would be great for Splatoon. Wait, does even. that also extend to like some of the Virtual Console backwards compatible stuff? Like, I, I don't even think it does. Oh, to, as man. far as I know, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I have only used it for Smash, and I think it's only able to be used with Smash, which is like great for Smash. And I have played, you know, I've played eight player Smash with everybody on a, you know, GameCube controller, which is, you know, sort of the way you want to play Smash. And it's great. And it's like every time, you know, we've had like a little Smash party or something, it's like, all right, cool. You know, how about some Mario Kart to wind down with? And it's like, oh, bust out the shitty Wii remotes, you know, and it's it's like such a bummer because it's like 
you've got it right there. It's, it's right there, man, you know, but marketing. And again, I could be wrong, but I, I am yeah. pretty sure, at least during the time that I have, you know, when I was playing Smash more often and playing it with those controller ports. Uh, yeah, it's just such a bummer. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Like, for all that we sometimes joke about how the, like, how the games press totally, like, navel gaze. Not navel gaze, let me, let me put it this way. But, like, take the industry too seriously and pay way too much attention, like, <laughs> messaging around hardware and everything. Like, yeah. occasionally you realize how much that stuff matters when it's handled badly. Yes. And, like, the fact that, like, okay, so neither of us are, like, like our our primary business is not knowing, not being up to speed in Nintendo. Like, right. we both, I think, kind of tilt more towards other consoles and PC. But the fact that neither of us really have any idea, like, <laughs> what the hell... <laughs> like what the, how the hell you use a Wii U the way we want to use it? Yeah, seriously, uh, yeah. Is it, it kind of it kind of reflects an issue, right? That like fundamentally, Nintendo never did do <laughs> do a good job of describing what you were actually getting with this and why you'd want it. And so uh, you know, like people who might otherwise be interested in it end up kind of chased off. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's it's just, it's just funny to me. And uh, <laughs> now that I know this controller exists, maybe I will. Uh, maybe my flirtate. Maybe I'll finally consummate my flirtation with Wii U ownership. It's, it is pretty great if you go the distance. It just shouldn't be as much of a pain as it is. <laughs> Our next uh, question comes from Hyde. Hi, Robin Danielle. I'm a long-term game player who, over the last couple of years, has really played almost no video games, mostly spending time reading and watching movies in my free time. Recently, recently, though, I bought Stardew Valley and have poured many hours into it, which has gone a long way to rekindle my love of gaming and interest in other new stuff. My question for both of you is, A, have you ever burnt out on gaming for a time when you needed to do something else for a significant period before returning to gaming? And B, if yes, was there a specific game that got you back into gaming after your time away? Thanks for taking the time to do the show. P.S., both of my parents were born in Olneyville, so all of Danielle's shout-outs to the greatest little state in the Union don't go out unnoticed. Coffee, milk, and clam cakes forever. Yay. Oh, thanks, Hyde. Well, glad to have a Rhode Islander calling in. Um, so, sorry. That was great. I love, that was very subtle. I, I do enjoy that. Very subtle. Um, so, for me, yes, absolutely. There have been periods of time where I basically didn't play almost anything. Um, I think the most significant one was my first year in uh, grad school when I, I was at BU for doing my MFA in film production. And I got a Wii and, you know, I played a bit of Zelda, but it took me like two years to beat that game because I, I hardly played it. And I just, I don't know. I, you know, I was, I was sort of freelance writing. That was my first year of, of as being a professional freelance writer. I was going to grad school. I was uh, studying to be an EMT. So I was busy, but, you know, that that usually doesn't stop me from playing a lot of games. I'm busy now, and I obviously play a lot of games. Um, and I've been busy at other points in my career when I wasn't a game journalist and still played a lot of games. So I guess just the sort of 2006 era wasn't, I don't know, there just wasn't as much I was excited about. Um, and what brought me back in, believe it or not, was the original Nintendo DS. I played Meteos like it was my job. I played Meteos and a little tiny uh, DS game called Clubhouse Games. Um, I played them at bedtime. Uh, pretty much that whole, you know, once I started getting back into games, after like six months of, of barely playing anything at that point, I just played so much of those little games. And it was sort of like, you know, the... I, I guess the the more casual stuff, at least Clubhouse Games was it was like a little compilation of of little you know, it had like solitaire and blackjack and little card games and and little puzzle games and things like that. 
Uh, and then Meteos, just I would just play that, chill out, and fall asleep, and it was it was beautiful. I still have some of those songs sort of stuck in my head from from playing that game. Uh, so yeah, I feel like it was just sort of having something handheld and having something that was both sort of soothing and relaxing and and sort of chill, and that's what sort of helped me get back in. So for me, there's there's a couple layers to this question. The first is. Burning out on gaming, I think, is probably something that happens to me once a year. Wow, um, yeah. And, like, it's not something you really can talk about because my job is to, you know, play games and do the reviews and everything. But there's definitely moments where I'm just doing it because it's a job and not really, like, I, I have no real interest in being there. Uh, sure. So that probably happens about once a year. Uh, and usually that has more to do with the places I'm working than games themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would say in the last year I've done a good job of maybe addressing some of the root causes <laughs> of, uh, of, of why that, why that might've been, but so, I mean, that, but that's a common feeling is just feeling a little burned out on this and, and a little exhausted, uh, in terms of things like really bringing me back, bringing, bringing me back, I would say last year, uh, <laughs> take a drink. <laughs> The Witcher 3 <laughs> yep. was kind of the game that reawakened my excitement uh, in some ways for uh, sort of for big, for, for, certainly for big like AAA games, right? Like this was, this was probably the, the most I've been into a game since like Mass Effect 2 that was sort of narratively based. Nice. And it was really exciting sort of, uh, you know, going back to, you know, like exploring that entire world. Um, and... Actually, I think for I, I should I should stress actually it wasn't just The Witcher Three. I knew The Witcher Three was coming, and so I actually made kind of a concerted effort over the holidays and 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 late winter to play through Witcher Witcher One, Witcher Two for the <laughs> yeah. first time, and then Three. So it was a pretty awesome like arc toward toward Witcher Three, and then Witcher Three arrived, and it was really great because I just compressed like nine years of video games into the space of like three months and it was actually really cool seeing how this studio and this series had evolved, but also seeing the continuity uh, that had been maintained. So that was, that was really cool and and was really kind of weirdly affecting and affirming uh, to me as someone who, who loves games. I think in terms of like me making a, a real return to gaming, it was probably back uh, toward the end of college when I started to, like college was winding down and my life was no longer a dumpster fire. So (laughs) I had time to actually play games again. Uh, And I think the, the, the first, the the game that really brought me back uh, was the original fear. Cause I'd remembered reading a preview for it in PC gamer, like literally years earlier. And I'd never gotten around to playing it because I didn't have a PC that could run it. And then I'd been busy for a few years and, and hadn't really had time. So it's my, it's my senior year and I finally have a computer that can run fear because uh, I got a new laptop and I gave it a shot and uh, it was exactly what I needed because it was just <laughs> like fear is an awesome shooter and it, I'm playing it late at night in my dorm room. And you know, the, yeah, that game, that, that game's approach to horror was pretty crude and pretty stupid. <laughs> But damn if it wasn't effective the first time through. And it was like some of the best 
uh, like shooter action I I'd like literally ever seen. Uh, so it was so that was a game that completely restored my faith that you know sometimes being a dude bro commando with a machine gun really can be enough. <laughs> maybe you know maybe that's maybe sometimes that's all you really need out of life. Yeah, uh, and 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 games can be good again. So that was that was probably you know in a weird way that ended up being uh, a, a really important milestone for me uh, in sort of. Uh, getting back into games, and a couple of years later, I was doing this professionally. So you know, the twist life, the, so the twist life takes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the last thing I would say about that, um, there have been times where I've gotten jaded about games, even as a you know full time game critic, game reviewer, whatever I am. Um, and during those times, I've found that uh, making a little game has really, really helped me. So I, I don't know if it's helpful for anybody else, but. You know, the fact that the tools are, are pretty accessible now. I uh, When I get really bored or really burnt out, I make a little little itty-bitty tiny game, and it makes me feel like, man, what a miracle when these things actually work. <laughs> and it sort of rekindles that passion for me. So that's uh, that's also something I recommend to folks if they have, you know, if they have the interest in that. All right. Our next email comes in from Mike D. from Northeast Philly. Mike D writes, chasing the dragon syndrome. That's not a question, that. Mike. Mike, what are you doing? <laughs> Mike, I love it. I love this title. You should totally be writing uh, headlines for Zam.com. Okay. I was an avid MMORPG player when I was younger. Some of my fondest memories are Asheron's Call 2 and Dark Age of Camelot. The games weren't as technically impressive as single-player games, but the communities were incredible. Many nights I sat in player-versus-player marathons, wrecking keeps, smashing faces, and talking trash. Games these days and modern MMOs are admittedly way more impressive than those older examples. However, I feel I've spent years burning cash trying to chase the spark I used to get. I understand it's probably not possible, however. Back then, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, amazed by the wonders of playing an online game. As I've gotten older, my expectations have increased. I've become more cynical towards games, just an all-around different person. Do you look back on games of yore with the rose-tinted glasses and think you'll never feel that spark again? How do you scratch that proverbial itch? Thanks for taking the time to read my email. Take it easy and good gaming. Mike D from Northeast Philly. Mike D, I I feel this. I, I really, really feel this. Yeah, sometimes I do feel like I'm chasing the dragon. Um, you know, it's it's really, really, really hard for a game to to get me like truly excited the way, you know, when I was younger, when I was a teenager or even, you know, a kid, um, it, it's it feels like it was so easy for me to get so excited. Like the defining exciting moment of my month or, or six month period or year was the, the game that I played, you know, and I feel like that's not necessarily uncommon. You know, when I was a kid, I only got games at, you know, my birthday and Christmas and maybe I would get something, you know, something came out over the summer and I, and I had a good report card or something in the last you know part of the year, I would get a game then, but you know, I would get like four or five games a year when I was young and then, you know, a little bit more as I got older and had a job and things like that. But honestly, I think part of it is being young, being a kid, everything's new and exciting. And part of it is uh, that sort of scarcity. (laughs) Right now it is, I could play hundreds of games. I have hundreds of games on Steam. I have hundreds of games, you know, uh, for consoles. I have so much selection. And in some ways that's a great, wonderful thing. Like we, we have so much, we have so many more kinds of experiences. And I really do think that's a wonderful thing. I love that I could play an itch, itchio game that one person made and it was personal. And I love that I can play something 600 people made and it's epic. And I love that I can play everything in between. 
but having so much choice is also sort of like, okay, well, it's hard to get that excited and that worked up anymore because I can play damn near anything in the universe. Um, so yeah, it, it is really hard to sort of rekindle that and recapture that. And I have to say, I think maybe the last time I felt really excited about a game was, yeah, take take a drink. Here's here's your drink from Danielle this week. Uh, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. I got, <laughs> I got really excited God. about that one. I'm sorry. I know nobody else did, but I, I, I did get really excited about that when it lived up to sort of my expectations for a really great Donkey Kong Country game. So take a drink. And the and the last time before that could have been Mass Effect Two. The first time I sort of got to, um, not Ilium, the Omega, the the sort of asteroid planet, and you yeah. go to that cool bar, and it's like this seedy space sort of place. And I had never played, I had never played Mass Effect before. I played Mass Effect Two, and so playing that second game, and then being in this incredible sort of space opera atmosphere, that was exciting to me. And I remember just sort of going into that bar and just sitting there for like an hour and just being like, this music is cool. This atmosphere is cool. I really like this. I can really play this. Uh, I don't think it's impossible to have that excitement again. Like I said, it, it, I've had it in the last couple of years, but it is rare. It is sort of a vanishing sort of thing. And, you know, maybe that makes it all the more special when it does happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have this problem where, like, increasingly, like, memories from, like, longer than, like, six years ago don't even feel like me anymore. Like, I, <laughs> sure. Like, I have this total ship of Theseus moment sometimes where I'm like, <laughs> no, I think, I think I might actually be an entirely different person and those memories fundamentally happen to someone else because I just can't, <laughs> I can't actually put myself in them anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I think, as far as that goes, we just did a, uh, we just actually did a show sort of relating to this on three moves ahead uh, with more of a strategy bent, but, but to that, to that point about like what makes an experience hold up and what is it you can sort of try and recover from them and why are some others just no longer appealing over time? Uh, and I, and I think part of it is one thing that came up a lot is uh, whether something, whether or not an experience has been sort of mimicked and replaced, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I think, a lot of MMOs have a problem where they've all sort of been building on each other for years and years. And so there's neither, there's not really much new about a lot of MMOs you could play right now because they, they do. So they owe so much to what's come before uh, that it is increased. It is kind of diminishing returns. If you played a lot of these games, like you've, you know, you, you've you've kind of seen a lot of their tricks and you know how they operate, and so it's 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 not going to seem fresh. It's going to seem very familiar. Uh, but at the same time, you can't just go back to the older ones uh, because they're just kind of worse versions of the <laughs> games you have now. Uh, they're, yeah. they're the cruder, uh, more primitive versions, and and so I think like for me, like games that are is where it's easy to sort of go back and recover the spark are games that fundamentally. Uh, were never reproduced. That 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 didn't really have sequels. That didn't have anyone sort of pick up the sort of the design ideas and run with them. Uh, and and those tend to hold up pretty well. And those are easy. Those in a weird way feel like fresh and new uh, because yeah. if you've been away from them for a while, you haven't seen these things before. You haven't seen them recently. Uh, and and so I think that is that is one way to to sort of scratch that itch. But as far as like trying to find it from newer games, uh, it is very hard. And I and I think you know well you you know, to a degree like welcome to the critics dilemma uh, <laughs> because this is why I think critics a lot of times increasingly like you know going to that like going to that like 
seven to ten grading scale and sort of the default oh, to yeah. like personally default towards sevens like i think part of that is you you do hit a certain point where you can recognize something particularly like it's well made it's fine but this is this is the the dozenth iteration of of the same set of ideas and you're just not it's just not exciting anymore and you play it like once or twice a year like you play a different version of that game once or twice a year um and at that point you you just got more to compare it to you know and and it's not there's there's nothing surprising about it anymore yeah thank so, you sorry right. no solutions for you mike <laughs> keep tra- yeah, keep chasing that dragon mike sorry <laughs> uh all right this one this one comes from wyatt hey weekenders i would like to hear your thoughts on the division and a trend i'm personally forecasting Personally, the game wasn't my cup of tea and didn't think it was very interesting to play. I returned the game after playing about an hour of it. However, I found it very compelling to watch the game streamed on Twitch. Watching these streams were what initially pushed me to purchase the game in the first place. So my question is, are AAA developers designing games for streamers that can evangelize games? Or should I file this with chemtrails and jet fuel can't melt steel beams? Wyatt, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of developers are, they're, they're not like necessarily designing the game only with streamers in mind, but I think it's very clear that, that games that do well uh, sort of on YouTube and on Twitch are, are, they're getting more attention. They're getting sales where maybe certain other games aren't. And we discussed this actually when we talked about the indie apocalypse talk at GDC, where every single person on that panel said, yeah, make something, you know, don't ignore streamers, basically. It's not it's not that they're necessarily designing games only for streamers, but don't don't ignore them because that is how games are covered now. Like, that is actually important to have something, you know, to show uh, people who, who do that kind of coverage. So I don't think you're wrong at all. Like, I, I think you're on to something, although it's not maybe not as, as a sort of intentionally, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a conspiracy theory to, to think that, yeah, hey, um, developers are paying attention to how games are being shown now. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if that's the case of The Division, because The Division also, that design dovetails with some long-standing objectives of Ubisoft, one oh, of yeah, which yeah. is to force you onto their servers and like play <laughs> the game in their environment so that nobody can pirate the damn thing. Uh, and so everybody is forced into embracing Uplay. Uh, as their as their sort of entry to the game, uh, and so that also does have the side effect of it makes it more streamable because now there's this entire online component to the game where you're running in the dark zone, and all sorts of goofy stuff is happening, and that's <laughs> sort of inherently entertaining to watch the way that system because of the way that system is constructed. But I'm not sure it was there to sort of um, pander to like uh, you know the way people like consume games media now. I think that system is 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 in large part there because. The design directive at Ubisoft right now is to make everything online, to put everything on t- into a, a server environment for, for Ubisoft games. Uh, so I think that's actually probably more where that comes from. And it being enjoyable is just a, just a pleasant side effect uh, because you can see like it's not that different from what was happening in The Crew. And uh, I'm not sure how that game did on, on streaming, but I, I certainly gave it, I gave it my level best shot to find an ounce of joy in that game and, uh, and, and couldn't really do it. <laughs> so I, I think The Division is probably not there so much to, to get, at, uh, get at like Let's Players or, or YouTubers or anything like that. Uh, but, but I do think increasingly people making games are, as Danielle said, 
taking taking how this stuff will be approached in the online video space pretty seriously because that is hugely important now. All right, our last email comes in uh, from Dave in RVA, and this is a topic we heard quite a bit about actually in several emails. So here we go from Dave in RVA. Hi, Danielle and Rob. I wanted to hear your take on this week's news regarding gameplay videos. I've seen several articles asking, should game publishers get a cut of ad revenue from Let's Play videos? The story seems to have started with the developer of the indie game That Dragon Cancer. After intense backlash, the developer removed the ID claims. Yeah, this is sort of what we had chatted about last week. Uh, in the comments section of the articles, the majority opinion was passionately negative. To the larger issue, though, if Let's Players are taking in ad revenue on videos that prominently feature IP they play that they don't own, I'm not convinced it would be unfair if they were expected to share a portion of their profits with the game's creators. Compared to Nintendo simply blocking all derivative video content outright, a split revenue system certainly seems better for everyone. Cheers, thanks for a great podcast, Dave and RVA. So, yeah, several people actually wrote in with something uh, similar to this, uh, you know, because we had obviously chatted about That Dragon Cancer and about, uh, you know, Let's Play videos in general. And, and we might revisit some of those emails last week because some are approaching from a slightly different angle. So there's a, there's yeah. a lot of things I want to sort of drill down in this topic, but I thought this was a good place to start. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think this is a good one. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, my opinion being, I, I don't think it's necessarily unfair to to create some sort of split ad revenue system. Uh, the thing that kind of sucks for let's players, uh, especially if you are not literally PewDiePie or Markiplier or, or one of you know one of the big dogs in the space, is that you get a, a pitiable amount of ad revenue from you know say if you only have a few a few thousand views on your video or you know a few it's it's more minutes watched now actually that's the metric that youtube sort of favors at this point but we'll just say views because uh, it's easy to talk about views um you know or maybe if you have something that hits a hundred thousand maybe you'll get a few dollars from that but you're already getting a, a tiny 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 cut of what sort of youtube takes um i'm not opposed in theory to sort of the way uh you know a sharing uh, profit sharing might might look at, but I, I really would prefer <laughs> Let's Players to be making maybe some more money before we even get to that point. What Nintendo does is uh, potentially admirable in in theory, but in in sort of in practice, it really sucks. I'll be honest about it. Um, Nintendo, you can you know, sort of join the Nintendo Partners program, where a portion of your ad revenue goes to Nintendo, which is all well and good. Uh, except for the fact that videos that aren't even of Nintendo games also have to have some of that revenue go towards Nintendo. Wait, what? Which, yeah, it sucks. Wait, it's so terrible. your entire channel? Yep. They become a partner in your channel? Yes, basically. So oh. it's, it's, it's rough. And that's why a lot of people have decided not to stream Nintendo games anymore or to put them on yeah. YouTube anyway. You know, I, I still stream Nintendo games on Twitch all the time. Uh, but I'm not even trying to make money on those videos yeah. on YouTube. I don't even put them up on YouTube most of the time because it'll just be straight, you know, hit with a content um, strike. And it, it, it sucks because it's like, I, in theory, I honestly wouldn't mind if it were just on Nintendo videos. I could check a box saying this is a Nintendo video. OK, 20 percent or whatever the small split is. That feels like, OK, that might be fair. But not if it's going to be my entire channel, which is 90% not Nintendo videos. That yeah. blows. You know what I mean? So I feel like there is a model out there that makes sense. Um, but man, oh man, are we not even there yet? Unless you're making you know thousands of dollars off of YouTube, basically. Maybe it would make sense if you if you make a certain amount of money, and then at that point you you know 
are, are, are required to give a certain amount back to the IP holders. I don't know. This also goes down, of course, to, to the nature of Let's Plays, which we talked about last week, and I won't go into it too far, but it seems to me that a Let's Play is a kind of uh, actual product if it's done well. It's, it's commentary, not just, you know, like we said, slapping only gameplay video up and then, you know, trying to make money off of that. That's, that's a different thing. Uh, than a than a proper let's play where it's actually a commenter who's you know potentially protected under fair use. So it, it's basically really hairy, tricky territory. I would love for there to be sort of an equitable way of of doing this, of sort of sharing revenue. But I, I wonder what it would look like at this point, honestly. Yeah, I um, you know, I'm in this I'm in this place with with this issue. It's like. I think people who do really good, like, Let's Plays and stuff, like, they shouldn't have, like, you know, if you do a good job, you shouldn't have to share any of your revenue. Like, there's a lot of people, right. like, okay, you you can take or leave them, whatever, but, like, most Jim Sterling videos I watch are fundamentally about Jim Sterling. Right. Like, <laughs> engaging with something and, and, and playing it and offering an opinion. Uh, it's It's really not, like... Like nobody's showing up. Like, boy, I can't wait to watch whatever game Jim Sterling is playing this week. They're right. they're, they're there fundamentally to sort of check in with one of their favorite entertainers. Um, and so I think for me, it's it, it's like no, like like screw that. Like you don't like no like you don't deserve to get a share of that of that ad revenue. That's like that that's like movie. That's like that is that is like film companies trying to get like like a take of the ad revenue from like old Siskel and Ebert shows. Right. Oh God. Yeah. Like the ads. Yeah. So that, that kind of drives me crazy is is like, no, that is completely fair use. These are, these are critical works. It's someone engaging with something. And fundamentally it's about the person creating that, that critical content that people are showing up, showing up for totally get it. On the other hand though, there are so many games where like fundamentally, it's just someone reacting to a thing. Yeah. And they're really not doing much beyond just like reacting like an asshole to a game that I kind of look at the popularity of that stuff. And I'm like, man, if I were, if I were, if I, if I made that game, I would think that was bullshit. Particularly a narrative game. You know? Yeah. That would, that would drive me crazy. And so like I am in this place, I have no principle. Uh, that I can identify here that I think is that it is a good guideline. Like I like the stuff I like, and I think those people should be allowed to keep their money. <laughs> yeah. I think there's also a lot of people just kind of exploiting uh, the work of others and then sort of doing a little bit of something to sort of make it theirs uh, and then taking the money and run. So it, it's, it's almost sort of the, uh, the equivalent, the video equivalent of when, you know, game journalism was let's copy and paste a press release with one, you know, one sentence or something yeah. over it and saying, Hey, I did journalism today. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I am, I am totally at sea when it comes to this. I, I think in general, um, I think ad sharing is, is, is probably too sticky wicket and, and is, is probably ultimately bad uh, because I just don't think, I just don't think that like it's, it's fundamentally like if the game is good in a lot of cases, it's fundamentally marketing for the game and it's, yeah. it's contributing to word of mouth. And in a lot of other cases, nobody is actually watching those videos for the game. They're they're watching it for the for the streamer or for the YouTuber. Yeah, I agree with that. I certainly that's why I watch streams. I don't think I've ever watched something just for the game. You know, it's always for hey, my friend's doing this, or hey, this person who's cool on the internet and entertaining is doing this. So, yeah, totally agree. It's a tough subject. <laughs> 
All right, so let's move into our weekend projects. Rob, are you watching, listening to, playing anything, especially setting your world on fire at this point? Uh, boy, I am... Um, let's see, uh, of late, I have a couple things. Uh, of late, I have been playing a game called Blockhood, and I Ooh. wrote a, uh, a an early access review of it on uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun. And Blockhood's kind of interesting uh, because it's... Kind of a city builder, but really on a much more micro scale. It's 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 sort of a neighborhood builder, I think is the way it describes itself. Huh, nice. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is it's a closed, like, it's kind of a closed system. Like, waste will build up, and it won't go anywhere. Um, there's no, like, you can't just build a trash dump or something, like, <laughs> elsewhere on the map, and stuff is trucked out. You can't just, like, put a coal, like, power plant out on the outskirts of the city and like power flows in uh everything sort of sticks around and lingers and has to be repurposed and so really blockhood is about building like a perfectly like carbon neutral housing (laughs) development like everything like it has to generate enough power to support its businesses it has to house the workers it needs in order to fuel the businesses those businesses have to generate enough money to like finance the infrastructure making the entire thing work and it's really demanding and, and really hard. Uh, and even in a fairly rough state, it's a pretty interesting take on the city builder because it actually addresses at least one of the things that you know has bothered me about games like Cities, uh, Skylines, or SimCity, which is fundamentally they're, they're like kind of urban development fantasies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but without a lot of uh, connection to a lot of the real issues facing uh, cities now or in the near future. Uh, and, and so like, you know, as someone, uh, you know, you as someone who's lived in San Francisco, New York, yeah. and, and me as someone who's lived in Boston, like I care a great deal about housing density. I yes. care a great deal about like being able to build vertically and create dense livable neighborhoods. Um, I care a great deal about, uh, you know, how you start redeveloping cities to be, uh, low emissions. Yeah. Um, cause God knows, did, I don't know if you read the, the Cambridge, uh, climate change report. Uh, that they that they published last no. year, Danielle. But I, it was, I've it was heard of it, but I did terrifying. not read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like like three months of a hundred degree days oh, in the century. Wow. Uh, and so, like, suddenly, like this stuff matters, right? Like, this is this this is going to be the immediate concern uh, for for urban developers. And I I am very tickled to see a game sort of sort of tackling this. I don't know if it tackles it that well. Sure. Uh, the city feels. It's very much an abstraction. It's very much a a system optimization game, and there doesn't seem to be any real penalty for for letting bad things build up. They just sort of exist as resources that you got to eventually do something with. Uh, but it's a cool way to start, and and I really dug it. Uh, and yes. I was gonna mention something else, but I think I've talked enough. I mean, it's okay if you want to mention it. I'm I'm down. Um. No, no, no. Let's, okay, let's we'll save it for next time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, I have been watching a TV show that is considerably smarter and better written than Daredevil. Um, I have been obsessively watching and watched the entirety of what's actually available on Netflix of The Fall. Uh, this is a uh, sort of a gritty, realistic crime drama starring Gillian Anderson as a sort of uh, UK police uh chief inspector or something something along those lines i don't know the actual uh terms in in uk law who goes to belfast actually to solve a serial uh you know the crimes of a serial killer 
Um, and it equally sort of spends time with the serial killer, who is a family man and a bereavement counselor who loves killing women in his spare time, basically. Uh, it's incredibly dark, uh, really, really sort of psychologically dark. It's it's sort of like as dark as Hannibal, actually. I, I, I couldn't handle that show for that dark. Like that first episode. It's, it's pretty. Uh, <sighs> the, it's leading to a brutal like home invasion, rape and killing. Yes. Uh, I was just not like I watched that and I just it was it was too awful. I, I was like, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm game for this anymore. Sure. As good as the performances are. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair and very worth saying. I should probably have prefaced this with a content warning, a giant, bold-type, 180-point face content warning. It is a brutally, brutally um, sort of realistic depiction of violence. Um, really, really nasty stuff happens in this show. Um, I... I'm not okay with that saying that it's like a great thing. I, it doesn't bother me as much in entertainment. Uh, so I, I sort of didn't have as much of a problem with that personally. I, I loved this show for the performances and for the writing and for this character that Gillian Anderson inhabits is just, she's just such an incredible badass. And it's a really, really feminist show. Actually, it really goes after not just, you know, sort of the very, very obvious, uh, giant, you know, a serial killer who hates women and and murders them in their homes kind of thing. But even like things like workplace sexism and Jillian's character, uh, Stella Gibson is unapologetically a sexual person who doesn't, you know, she, she sees a guy that she likes or maybe a lady that she likes and she kind of goes for it. And when somebody sort of judges her for that, she's like, would, would that bother you if I were a guy, you know, having a one night stand? Why, why is it a problem if I'm a woman? And even, even, you know, sort of workplace sexism and, you know, coworkers who, who sleep together and things like that. It, it actually goes after like a lot of really, not mundane because, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to call any kind of violence or, or sexual misconduct mundane, but, but sort of the everyday gross, nasty sexism that can happen towards women. It goes after that with the same intensity that it goes after sort of the serial killer. Well, um, I, I haven't meaning to give it another try because people like who'd watched it did tell me like that first episode is really about establishing the stakes. Yes. Like now, you know, the killer's M.O., now you know what's what this case is ultimately about. It's never going to revisit that stuff in that sort of brutal level of detail. At that point, the series flips into more of a psychological exploration and a police procedural. Yes. Uh, where a lot of these themes that you're talking about really sing. Just that first episode is setting up like the, that first episode has this like awful inevitability lead to it uh, to just a, to, to an awful ending for a character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but definitely those themes were, were really interesting. That first episode where. It is dealing with the fact that, you know, she's an enormously competent woman, uh, sort of brought in as a specialist, uh, and the way people are, are sort of interacting with her when, when she gets there and, and the way she sort of rubs people, um, <laughs> both sexually and otherwise. <laughs> All the rubbing, yes. Uh, yeah, it's just, rubs, it's, <laughs> just gets in there and rubs criminals. It's, it's kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Another another thing I sort of love about this show, Archie Punjabi is actually also in it. Also Wait, known what? as Kalinda Sharma from uh, another favorite series of ours, The Good Holy Wife. Sh- Wait, oh, yes. oh I yeah, I know this. Wait, oh who yes, is she? she is a pathologist in it. She's a doctor who performs um, some autopsies and and so on and so okay. forth. Well, uh, so it's a show. It it is like competent women times a million, and sh- against sexism times a million, and also 
Also, though, this is the part, again, the, your point is it cannot be understated. It is very violent and brutal at the very beginning, um, and that can certainly turn people off. There's also um, there's also a, a, a storyline that explores an abusive relationship, a, you know, not not the serial killer himself, but, uh, you know, a man who beats his wife. And that's also very, very sort of um, there's there's a scene that's also very hard to take with that. So there there is violence after that first episode. It never goes to the same lengths, I don't think, uh, after that. But, but there's some there's some gross violence against women, for sure. I would I, I would say, like, that first episode, like, hits strange days levels. It's, it's pretty discomfort bad. Yeah. Uh, but okay, I'm I'm taking it back. I'm not done because this actually <laughs> dovetails too perfectly. Uh, this this week yeah. I was reading a book by Adrian McKinty called Gun Street Girl. Oh. Uh, and Adrian McKinty is or or has been one of my favorite uh, crime fiction writers of, like the last decade. Um, awesome. is uh sort of a, he's an Irish expat and. All his most of his novels have dealt with uh, people and characters uh, who are from Northern Ireland. Oh, nice! And the series that he's currently writing and his most successful series, uh, of which Gun Street Girl is, I believe, the fourth book, uh, is the Sean Duffy series, and it is set in the early eighties. Uh, he is a he is a he is an inspector uh, with the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary. An inspector. Uh, I, I finally found out that that's basically like detective, detective. for us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he is a Catholic in an overwhelmingly Protestant police force during mm. the height of the troubles. Oh yeah. And it's a really interesting and, and gripping look at uh, Belfast and and Northern Ireland in that era. So it's interesting to see like a lot of the familiar beats of a police procedural. Uh, you know, you go talk to the pathologist, uh, you go investigate, you go follow up on leads, talk to witnesses, uh, you know, talk to old retired reporters to get backstory, stuff like that. But it's all against this backdrop of everything is just so much harder because every 20 pages or so, um, everything has to stop because your police station is being mortared. Oh my God. Or you're just like, you think you're driving to pick someone up uh, and transfer them from one jail to the next and you're driving at night and then you find a bus across the road and suddenly like automatic weapons are opening up from both sides and you're just in an ambush (laughs) and, and how weirdly casual uh, like police had to be in this era, right? Where like, Oh, it's just, it's just, it's just machine gun fire plinking off a uh, armored Land Rover, but it's fine because it's armored. So just ignore it. Wow. Um, and also makes it more, much more shocking when when a truly like awful terrorist attack does take place. So it's 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 a really interesting uh, series. It's 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 a fascinating look at at a fascinating time. Uh, my issue with this series is that it reflects something that I find a little disappointing, and also is maybe a little too resonant for me as a writer, uh, which is that McKinty's first novel. Uh, dead I well may be <laughs> will go down as one of my absolute favorite pieces of crime fiction ever written nice. and it is this <laughs> he is out there really pushing he is he is trying to make a, a, a he is trying to tell a crime epic uh, with with elements of of Joycean and uh, Yatesian poetry to it wow <laughs> um and that first book is fantastic. Like it is, uh, it is set in New York in the in the early nineties, 
and it's this fantastic, like, blood-curdling tale of, like, revenge and betrayal. Uh, but also just this amazing portrait of, of New York uh, and Manhattan before, you know, before things changed, right? Yeah. When, when it was still kind of a grimy, uh, awful place to live, but kind of glorious as well. Uh, but, but just that tone uh, was... It didn't always work. Sometimes it seemed like it was trying a little bit too hard, but by and large, it made it really distinctive and beautiful and exciting. And his later novels, I think, generally stuck with that. Um, and yes, they did get more and more uneven uh, because they, they, they ended up being these sort of like Jekyll and Hyde things. They, he never got the mixture quite as right as he did in Dead I Well May Be, where, uh, you know, you've got the, you, you've got on the one hand genre fiction, but on the other hand, uh, this really beautiful, uh, like literary, like literary, uh, approach to it. Yeah. And those books, then you, you sort of, you sort of just accepted that along with those highs, which are these incredibly memorable passages and, and, and images, you had to deal with some really clunky stuff as well. And, yeah. and some really, uh, poor, poor, poor plotting or poor execution of a moment. Uh, I think what, what bothers me about the Sean Duffy series is it's perfectly fine. But it is absolutely and recognizably the product of a creator who has sort of learned to sort of effortlessly do their thing, right? Mm-hmm. It is when a style mm-hmm. starts to starts to become maybe shtick yeah. a little bit, and so it's like it's still readable. I still enjoy his I still enjoy his works, but it, you can absolutely tell that he's no longer like stretching the way he was in those early novels. And he's sort of settling into more of a, all right, it's time for another, it's time for another Sean Duffy mystery and a few of the stylistic uh, touches that, that I've become known for as a writer. And there we go. And so they're, they're good. They're good mysteries. They're enjoyable. They're, they're really exciting and informative about this, about this place and time. But when you compare it to his earlier work, when he was maybe a slightly less competent, but more ambitious writer, yeah. something has gone out of it. And I don't like that as much. I don't like knowing that I won't be surprised by this guy the way I was like 10 years ago. But I think also, self-consciously, it definitely makes me sort of reflect <laughs> on my own growth and occasional lack thereof as a writer. Uh, because I think it's very hard to do this professionally without inevitably sort of becoming a parody of yourself. Because eventually you just get tired. Like, it's not you just get tired. You just, you get real good at doing the thing. Yeah, it's working well enough, so you keep going down that road. Yeah, Yeah. for sure, for sure. Oh, man, I hear that, too. (laughs) That's, uh, God, that is a terrifying thought. I I hate aging. That's just going to be my general thought about it, because I feel like it happens to everybody. Uh, No matter what you're good at, you kind of start going through the motions at some point. On that really uplifting note... (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Uh, This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo, and it's hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Keep those letters coming. We are getting awesome letters. We usually get awesome letters. It's really fantastic, and thank you all for doing so. And of course, if you like the show, you're enjoying it, Please, please, please go to iTunes, rate us, tell your friends about it, tell your, your whoever you think might enjoy the show. Whoever it is, it's all good. We, we love to have them hearing us, basically, and we really do appreciate that, and we appreciate you for listening. Uh, to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. 
For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. That was a blast. That was really good. We're getting good at this. Mike D writes, I have two questions for any hosts that dare to answer them. I Chasing- cut the first question. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. I should Not- have. So, sorry, sorry, Mike D. Sorry, Mike. Mike D, That we have one question for a host that dares to but, answer them. But we do them. dare answer them. We dare answer this one. Chasing the dragon syndrome. That's I not a question, that. Mike. Mike, what are you doing? <laughs> Mike, I love it.